0: Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. You don't get to invest with the benefit of hindsight. Mistakes are made and you have to live with them. But it begs the question, if you could travel back in time, what investing advice would you give to your younger self? Would you champion index funds, warn about risk, or maybe suggest just
1: getting started? And in today's dumb question of the week, am I rich? Okay, let's get into it. So this week, we're thinking about what would we tell our 21-year-old self about investing if we could talk to them? So could I tell myself to buy Apple stock? Did Apple exist when you were 21, (laughs) Roman? Yes, it did, (laughs) Mike. No, I've got to clarify, we're not talking about stock tips or anything like that. This has got to be timeless investing advice. So what did you know about investing when you were 21 years old?
0: I didn't know anything about investing. I knew a lot about physics, but very little about markets or any of that. And when did you start getting into it? I think it was when I first bought a book called The Zulu Principle by Jim Slater. What it laid out was an approach to investing where you invest in single stocks with higher growth than people expect. And, you know, I kind of went off and tried to do research and yeah, obviously it went wrong. So I
1: guess you wouldn't tell your 21-year-old self about the Zulu Principle book. You'd give yourself a little bit different advice.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to do that and come up with something which works really well. You know, it would probably be very simple. You know, I think if anything, it would be don't follow recipes for trying to beat the market. That's almost certainly not going to work.
1: Well, it sounds like if you didn't know about investing at 21, the first thing would be start learning about it, right? Because it's so important to start early which is, I think, what a lot of people
0: don't realise. Yeah, that's one of my regrets, actually, which is I didn't know stuff early on. And also focusing in on the most important stuff, because whenever you enter a new field, usually there's some certain core knowledge which you need to start with. And then you embellish that with particular examples and more detail until you build up a kind of complex knowledge tree. The thing with investing
1: nowadays is there's so much information out there and so much of it is bad information. So when you're starting out, it's really hard to separate good from bad until you happen upon the Pension Craft YouTube channel and go from there.
0: Now, it's kind of interesting because when I started out thinking about these things, I remember thinking that firstly, it was odd that markets always go up. You know, what's going on there? How is that possible? Because as a physicist, when you see something which is always increasing, you always think, well, that's not sustainable. The
1: universe is expanding, Ramin.
0: Yes, that's true. But, you know, will it always expand, you know, or are we in a closed universe? That's the question. (laughs) So that was odd to me. The other thing was it was very opaque. It was very difficult to get into it and understand, you know, those key principles. Because like you say, there wasn't a good source of information and the evidence was pretty hard to come by. You know, you're not really educated at school about investing. So I was pretty clueless.
1: So it's a good thing we've invented time travel then. When I think back to myself at that age, I didn't really know anything about investing either. I just heard a lot of what I would think of as bad folk wisdom, where people who are older than me kind of gave these things which they thought were truisms about markets and money. But just with what I know now, are patently false. So I heard so many people say things like pensions are a scam when I first started working. (laughs) And therefore, for the first two or three years after graduating, I was not putting money into a pension and I was missing out on free employer contributions and stuff. Now, I wasn't earning that much at the time, so it doesn't make a huge difference. But still, it's annoying when you think about the compounding effect.
0: Well, pensions being a scam, that's an interesting one because I still hear that. You know, I still hear that markets, stock markets are a scam Particularly if I speak to clients from Austria or from Germany. I don't know why, but in those countries, perhaps it's because they've got a kind of moribund stock market, which surged and then crashed in 2000. People still have the memory of that. And that's why the folk wisdom is kind of entrenched. Whereas if they had invested in global markets, they'd actually be a lot better off. I definitely think there's that
1: culture underlying it. My wife's from Austria, so I hear some of that over here. But it's also the fact that their banks were particularly badly hit, I think, in the financial crisis. We've talked about Credit Suisse last week. We've got Deutsche Bank and Commerzbank in Germany who've not been in the best shape.
0: And all the Landers banks, which ultimately suffered a lot, didn't they?
1: But I definitely think forewarning myself at 21 that pensions are not a scam and are a
0: perfectly good use of your money would be helpful. Although having said that... I do speak to a lot of people who have company pensions and they look at their company pension and they say, look, markets have gone up by this much. My pension's only gone up by this much. Why is that? Yeah. And then we look at it and you see, okay, so it's got 50% in the UK. Immediately, that's underperformed for at least a decade. Or it's got a lot in bonds, which usually don't generate a lot of return relative to stocks. So the allocation of your pension is really important as well. Definitely.
1: I was going to partner with the advice that pensions are not a scam. I was going to say to myself, get yourself out of the default pension fund or at least look what you're invested in. Because when I did start investing in a pension, I don't know, when I was 23, 24, I thought, well, my job here is done. Now I'm going to be able to retire. Not realising that, like you say, way too much of that was in bonds for a 24-year-old. And where we're going, Ramin, we don't need bonds. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> we'll always need bonds michael in the future it's your kids michael they've got to have bonds <laughs> <laughs> that's not back to the future i was like
1: the godfather <laughs> i was trying to do
0: doc it didn't work but i think seriously
1: looking at what your pensions invested in it might sound obvious but it makes a
0: huge difference so i think if i could travel back in time and just give one number it would be the outperformance of stocks relative to bonds So that's the flux capacitor in your DeLorean of your portfolio. It's the equity in there long term, which is going to generate the returns. And I think that's what I'd like to tell myself.
1: Yeah, if you haven't seen Back to the Future, a lot of this episode is not going to make any sense. (laughs) But what is the number?
0: Well, 4%, roughly. That's how much more stocks will give you on average every year relative to bonds. So just look at the allocation you've got and think, well, for this stuff, I'm not going to touch for decades. Why have I got bonds in there anyway? And do I want that number of bonds?
1: And what's interesting is most people never move their money out of the default pension fund.
0: So another thing I tell myself is take control of your pension if you possibly can. So what some of the pension crafters do is they move money out of their company pension into a SIP. The company carries on contributing to that company pension, but then regularly, say once a year, that money moves out into the SIP. Yeah, you can sort of
1: sweep it all out and into your own pension if you want to do that.
0: Exactly. And then you've got the control over it. You've got the control over fees, over the allocation. As long as you're educated about what to do with it, which was our first point, get educated, then I think you're in much better shape long term, probably.
1: And some people just do it because the investments they want to hold are not available or not available at the right fee. In their company pension it might be extremely limited the fund choice you have
0: and usually it is because the assumption is that you know nothing and that's a reasonable assumption in most cases so they try to keep it simple they sometimes try to keep the fees low as well i've seen some very reasonable fund fees in pension funds
1: but the point is most people don't even look like your company pension as it stands and its default offering might be perfectly great but it would be good to look at that and reassure yourself and I think a lot of people got sceptical about pensions because they heard things like, Gordon Brown has robbed us or whatever it was.
0: Well, they did have examples where a company would dip into its own pension scheme and take the money. So there's the famous case of Robert Maxwell who plundered his own company's pension fund. And that was atrocious for the people who, whose life savings were essentially stolen.
1: Oh, definitely. The other folk wisdom I heard a lot at that age was people my own age saying, I'll never be able to retire. Now, maybe they were right talking about themselves, but I think that's a horrific thing to hear when you're 21. And I don't think it's true. Like if you run the numbers, it doesn't take that much in the way of contributions to be able to build up a sizable pension pot to live off.
0: Now, what I heard, I was working in a company where it was very much kind of, to do with dot-coms, and it was at the time of that huge excitement about those dot-com companies. And several of the people I used to talk to would say things like, if I need a pension, I'll have failed, with the assumption being that, oh no, I'm going to start a company, I'm going to be super rich, I don't need a pension. I don't
1: like tax advantage stuff. But seriously, that's effectively saying I want to pay more tax, isn't it?
0: Yeah. And they're also assuming that everything's going to work out. It's always good to have that fallback scheme. You know, obviously you're going to try and achieve success in your business, but what happens if it goes wrong or you get ill or, you know, something happens that means it's not going to be super successful, which is the most likely outcome, let's face it. And I think it's terrible to hear that people think they're not going to be able to retire, especially
1: when you're young, because the one thing that will allow you to retire much more easily is getting started when you're young because of the compounding effect. So what happens is people throughout their 20s, a lot of them think, I'll never be able to retire. In their 30s, they think, I'll never be able to retire. In their 40s, they think, oh God, I am going to have to retire. And now they have to (laughs) massively ramp up their savings rates, which if they'd known that at the start, the journey would have been a lot easier.
0: And the compounding difference between investing at the age of 20 and 50 is just phenomenal. Yeah. We're talking about fivefold, sixfold multiples of the money that you put into your pension at the age of 20. And that's real return. So that's inflation adjusted. So you get this huge multiplier effect. So if I could say one thing, it would just be put as much as you can in as soon as you can.
1: Do you think our 21-year-old selves are going to find us really boring, travelling through time and saying,
0: I need to talk to you about your pension? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the other point, actually, which is that it is boring. That was the other point. People just didn't want to talk about it because... You know, you don't want to talk about a pension when you're 20. You're out getting drunk with your friends, you talk about music, you talk about all the other things in life which you enjoy. And a pension is just the last thing you want to think about. Absolutely. Which is why
1: I will give the government a lot of credit for their auto enrolment scheme, which wasn't in place when I was 21, but is now. And unless you actively opt out of contributing to a pension, you should be making those contributions automatically. But It's always worth having a look if you want to up that contribution level. The government did a good thing. Who could have imagined it beforehand? We're always giving them a lot of credit, Roman. But mainly what I'm telling my younger self is to just ignore that bad folk wisdom. Another one is stocks are gambling. I heard that all the time. I think maybe because my parents' generation built wealth based on housing more easily, and they probably lived through the dire period in the 70s where returns were just awful for UK stocks that they didn't have that instinctive knowledge that we have, that over the long term, the very long term, stocks go up, at least they always have in the
0: past. And again, a key understanding here is the different behaviour of risk over different time periods. The big risk over long time periods is buying bonds because they underperform. Buying equity is actually the lower risk thing to do, which seems very counterintuitive. Because our lives, our news lives, if you like, are the way we perceive the world. And there we see stuff about crashes. We see things about markets moving down very quickly. That's what grabs attention. Just look at the YouTube stats. You look at any video which has the word crash in it, and it'll have multiples of the number of views of an optimistic video. We're just attracted to doom and gloom stories, and we're not attracted to the truth, which is that things usually turn out okay. That's the thing which people don't appreciate, I don't think. And I didn't appreciate the power of time and compounding.
1: And the other thing I would maybe add to that is the benefits of diversification over the long term to lower your risk and the importance of keeping fees low. I mean, these are all the things we talk about all the time. But if you could get your 21-year-old self to put as much money as possible into a broad, globally diversified, passive stock tracking fund... Your job's
0: basically done, right? But they didn't exist when I started out. So when I was 20, it was 1988, and even the first big ETF hadn't been created. So that was the S&P tracker. People call it Spider. Now, that was only created in the early 90s. People were talking about index funds at the time, but all of the kind of stuff from BlackRock, all of these super cheap ETFs just didn't exist. So I think even if you understood that that's what you needed, finding a passive global fund at that point would have been next to impossible. And if you did want something truly global, it would have been very difficult to create at the time. So I don't think we appreciate how easy it is nowadays to buy a global index. And we don't appreciate how powerful that is. You can literally have one fund which buys the entire market.
1: Yeah, it's unbelievable when you think about it, that you can buy the world for less than 0.2% as a fee. I mean, I guess I will forgive people somewhat for saying stocks are gambling to me when I was younger, given that we were in the midst of the financial crisis when I graduated. It did feel more like a gamble.
0: Maybe the proviso should be over the short term, stocks are gambling.
1: Yeah.
0: As long as people understand that, I think it's absolutely fine because it's true.
1: But Ironically, a lot of my generation said, graduating in 2008, oh, this is a terrible time, the job market's bad, we're going to be screwed, which is true, the job market wasn't great. But as an investor, it was an amazing time to start investing right after the global financial crisis. You couldn't really wish for a better time.
0: That was once in a lifetime. And that's another lesson, right, which is that you do get these once in a lifetime opportunities. So pay attention to valuation. You know, that's really important. But you don't choose
1: when you get to start investing, right? You just get to the age and
0: the valuation is what the valuation is. But you can tell whether you're overpaying for something. And that allows you to calibrate your expectations about the returns to receive. So if you bought right at the peak of the dot-com bubble, well, you'd have been waiting a long time for your portfolio to recover. So as an identification for euphoria, so to identify those periods when euphoria is out there and you're overpaying for stuff, it's really valuable.
1: But luckily, I didn't graduate at the top of the dot-com bubble. (laughs) It was right in 2008, 2009. But like I said, I probably missed out on some returns for the first couple of years through ignorance. And then I would say I missed out on some more returns over the next five or so years by not taking enough risk. Like you said, I think I always held a bit too much cash. And I would probably warn myself about that.
0: And I made the same mistake. When I was working in investment banking, I had a very large cash buffer. And the argument was that if I did get fired, I'd have enough money to live off. But if I had put that into stocks, I'd have been a lot better off nowadays.
1: Yeah. The question is the size of the emergency fund you need, right? You do need one, but I think, you know, for me, six to 12 months of spending. Yeah,
0: it's not easy to decide the size of that buffer. And I think it really depends on how long you think a crash is going to last, how long you're going to be eating those safe assets before you have to dip into the equity. And it's very different post-retirement than pre-retirement, of course.
1: The other thing was I was thinking I'm going to have to buy a property at some point. I'm building a deposit. That needs to be in cash because it's for the relatively short term. And at the time I was looking to buy on my own eventually, but then I met my wife and you've got two people and you need a lot less money. So (laughs) at the end I was just like, oh, I've got too much cash. That should have been in the market years ago. And it's not a trivial amount of money you missed out on. I did the sums once and promised myself I would never do them again. (laughs) I think for most people in their early 20s though, the main thing they need to hear is to just get started. Like if you look at the stats in the UK, most people aren't investing, other than maybe in a pension.
0: And it does feel like dead money at the time. You think, well, why am I putting money into this fund? I could be spending it on holidays. I could be spending it on fun things.
1: Yeah, it's a balance, isn't it? Which is the hard thing to get right. But the other thing I would say to myself is don't obsessively check your investments once you do get started. This was a mistake I made the first few years where I started investing. Like every day to begin with, then every week, I would (laughs) look at the value of them. And it was generally good news because the market was going up at that time. But why are you looking at it every day? You're a long-term investor. And I knew that, but I just couldn't shake it for quite a while until I dialed it down to monthly.
0: And that's very contrary to my philosophy with other things in life. So, for example, when learning about physics, you know, I mean, that's not something you do passively. It's something you actively approach. What you can't do is step back and kind of just let it go. Almost every other aspect of life can't be managed that way. You can't do it with your kids. You can't do it with your garden. You can't do it with car maintenance. You've got to be active and remain engaged. And yet with investments, there's a very clear relationship between how often you fiddle with it and how well you perform, with more fiddling usually resulting in lower returns.
1: Yeah, it's weird, isn't it, that lazy investors... Generally, outperform.
0: And dead investors, you know, this thing from Jim O'Shaughnessy, if you've got a trust fund, it does very well because people don't try to buy more when it's rallying or sell when it crashes.
1: Yeah, and that's the point about not checking your investments too often is that if you are into a market crash or a bear market, the temptation is going to be much greater to sell if you can see every day it ticking down in value.
0: And market timing usually doesn't work, even if you do pay attention to valuation. It doesn't really give you a timing signal. So you might think you can essentially avoid the bullet, but you can't. The one thing I was lucky about was I never really had the bug
1: to try and pick stocks myself. I was just too lazy to do my own research, right? And again, being a lazy investor pays off here. So I was always more of an index fund guy. But I think to some people, what they would definitely tell their younger self is don't take too much risk
0: and don't think you know more than you do. What's fascinating is I do speak to people who are stock pickers. I don't know why they talk to me because, you know, I'm clearly not one, but they talk to me about the single stocks they own. And sometimes what's interesting is that they've actually inherited the stock from their parents and they've got a kind of family relationship with that company. Maybe they worked for them, maybe they've just invested in them over the long term and it's done very well. So there is this kind of Emotional link with particular stocks which people nurture over the generations. And I'm not sure that's a good idea. You know, that's probably not a good strategy.
1: I don't think emotion is a great thing when it comes to
0: investing, right? The other weird fact is that most stocks underperform the market over their lifetime. And you're probably thinking, how's that possible? But it is a fact that if you choose a stock randomly, most of them will underperform the market over their lifetime from the time they're created to the time they go bankrupt or get merged.
1: Yeah, the market is dominated by a few big winners, which is what puts the odds against you as a stock picker.
0: And again, you know, all of the cognitive biases that kind of lure you into rallies, that make you do stock picking, that make you stick with investments longer than you should when they're going down, and make you sell when they've gone up. All of these biases would be another good thing to learn. So that would be another thing which would go into my little knowledge packet to the past. Know yourself. I guess you could summarize it that way. Did you ever have the stock picking bug on the side? Oh, yeah. And I still got it. You know, I still have the urge to stock pick. I mean, that's why I keep this fun portfolio, just to continually remind myself, you can't do it, Roman. <laughs> but I'm always tempted back in because I'm kind of numerically autistic in the sense that I get excited by numbers and I have this ill founded belief that you could analyze something and make it work. Because, you know, physics is that way. You know, you do understand things and you can create processes that work. You can control nature in a way. With markets, much less likely.
1: But what if your fund portfolio suddenly starts posting massive returns? Are you not going to be thinking, I finally cracked it?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm too old and cynical for that. You know, I just think it was luck, really. But it is fun for that reason. You know, you, you always think at the back of your mind, yeah, I can do it no matter how many times you learn that you can't. Most people do think that. For some reason, I've never really thought
1: that about myself when it comes to stocks. Maybe because
0: so many people told me it was gambling. But a lot of people are pushed into investment by looking at what their friends are doing or their family. And they only tell you the stories about when they do well. They're not going to tell you about the 90% losses. And usually they'll be telling you about, oh, I bought this stock, it doubled, it quadrupled. It was a 10-bagger. You know, that's what people talk about. And it's just misleading.
1: I think, weirdly, a lot of people tell themselves those stories as well. Like, I know we've had a lot of correspondence when we've talked about things like keeping the investment journal in the past and looking back over your returns and just comparing it to a low-cost index fund. And I've had emails from people saying, I did what you said and mapped out my returns. And I thought I was doing really well, but actually, I'm underperforming the market. <laughs> I and mean, I call these things phantom returns. Oh, I like the thought of phantom return. People remember the good decisions they make, generally, and forget
0: the time they bought that stock that dropped 90%, like you say. Because it's uncomfortable to think about it. I think people don't want to remember failure. Maybe this is a good thing. Our memories protect us from unpleasant things in the past. But when it comes to investing, that's kind of disastrous.
1: There's also a weird fetishization, really, of those few investors who have successfully picked stocks over decades. I think, you know, Warren Buffett and people think, oh, Warren Buffett did it. But then there's a reason Warren Buffett is so unique and successful.
0: What he's done is incredibly hard. And for every Warren Buffett, there are many, many, many Bill Millers which outperformed for a while, and then somehow they lost their mojo. So I think that's the problem. You've got these charismatic people who people listen to because they're gonna be on the media. Maybe they've outperformed for a while, and you think, oh, this is the next best thing, and then it goes wrong. So I think having a memory of all of the people who made the wrong calls is also useful.
1: Yeah, just put a picture of Neil Woodford on your bedroom wall.
0: And I loved this comment on my YouTube channel. So gringador5385, thank you. I've had quite enough of Roman's optimism, trusted the Fed not to overstimulate trusted the Fed to raise appropriately, (laughs) thought there would not be stagflation, thought there would not be sticky inflation, thought there would not be a recession, had to backtrack on all of those, as well as bought ETH at close to all-time highs (laughs) and a house at the peak of the housing market.
1: It's a little unfair, but he's keeping your investment journal for you.
0: Yeah, but this is why I don't make forecasts, right? And I always say, don't do what I do. And the fund portfolio particularly... Don't do what I do. That's why I focus on the stuff that does work, which is, you know, buy and hold for the long term and kind of ignore the news.
1: I want to give you some credit here, Roman, because what you said about the successful stock pickers and the splashy people on TV getting a lot of attention promising these big returns is true. It's easy to get attention that way. But what you do by talking about, you know, what actually works for most people, you don't need to be super smart. You just need to know the right things and stick to them over the long term and that will work for you. It's hard to get attention saying that kind of stuff, and you've managed to do it.
0: Yeah, i like to reply to that comment actually, which is uh, quite certain there's a lot of BS there. You've not been listening accurately, which I do <laughs> <what I> mean.
1: <laughs> You
0: do have your fans to stick up for you now. That's right, it's fortunate, you know, I do have a little bit of credibility in the bank, with some people at least.
1: And maybe a related thing I would tell my younger self is don't compare yourself to others. I definitely made this mistake in investing and just with money generally,
0: which I don't think is helpful. Yeah, I think people have their own goals, and you may not have the same goals as another person. Wealth, I've learned, is really being able to do the things you want to do. It's not about the amount of money you've got. So as long as what you earn and what you save and what you get to investment return is enough to achieve your goals, then really what other people do is kind of irrelevant as long as you can achieve those goals. So really, it's about maximising the probability that you're going to hit those life targets and identifying what they are. And I think you just want to
1: avoid being tempted to try and show off conspicuously how much wealth you have. There's a lovely quote from Morgan Housel, who wrote The Psychology of Money, where he says, spending money to show people how much money you have is the fastest way to have less money. In preparation for this episode this morning, I said to my wife you know, if you were going back in time to talk to your younger self, what advice would you give her about investing? And she had a really cliche answer. She said, don't buy so many shoes. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought, Christina, that's not investing advice. <laughs> and then she said, don't buy shoes which hurt your feet. I was like, hmm, is that some kind of metaphor? Are you talking about don't invest in things with high fees? Is that what you're saying there? <laughs> yeah. Is that what you're really saying? She said, no, just don't hurt
0: your feet. <laughs> Why would you buy shoes that would hurt your feet? Do you know any women, Roman? No, actually, I did buy some shoes that hurt my feet, and it was a show of ostentatious wealth when I didn't have any. Tell me about these shoes. So these were brogues that I bought on High Street, Ken, and I walked past High Street, Ken quite a lot because I was at Imperial, and I just loved these shoes, these Bally shoes. So I bought them, and you know they were quite exciting, but they pinched my feet. But they looked so damn good. At least I thought they did and my feet would bleed every night. And I thought, no, that's fine. You know, I'll I'll kind of get into it. They'll just stretch because they're posh shoes. Those damn shoes destroyed my feet.
1: (laughs) So this is what we're telling ourselves. We invented time travel saying, invest in pensions and don't buy
0: shoes. (laughs) Now we talked about the mistakes you can make when investing. One way to avoid that is via accountability. With a community in pension craft, you'll have that in spades. And you will also get the chance to ask a question whenever you want on our chat channels. To learn more about that and becoming a member, go to our website, PensionCraft.com. Okay, today's dumb
1: question of the week. Am I rich? I guess the question is how would you measure it? And here we're talking about monetary wealth, obviously. And the Office for National Statistics in the UK handily publishes some figures about average wealth in the UK.
0: And the distinction people don't usually appreciate is the difference between income and the amount of money you've got, which is wealth.
1: And wealth is split across all your different assets, right?
0: So it's housing wealth as well as portfolios and pensions. And I was shocked by the answer, actually, which was the median.
1: So to make the distinction, as you did, between income and wealth, when we look at income, the median household disposable income is just over £32,000 in the UK. But then when we go on to wealth the numbers obviously go up quite a bit because people accumulate wealth over their lives the median household net wealth is just over 300,000 pounds and on an individual level the median is 125,000 pounds
0: which is surprisingly low given that it includes the value of your house the mean
1: however is quite a lot higher so if the median was 125 for an individual the mean wealth is 305 And this was based on data in 2020. So it actually might be a bit higher now since we've had a rally in stocks, but also in house prices.
0: Now, I love kind of visualizations of these numbers. And one way which I think is useful to visualize this is imagine you've just got 10 people in the UK and we line them up in order of, let's say, pension wealth. So we're just looking at one component of that total wealth. So the person on the far right owns 64% of the total pot of all the people. The four people on the left, the poorest four, own 0% of the total pot. Nothing. So we've got a huge disparity here between people who've got almost nothing, which make up, you know, the four deciles on the far left, and people who own all of the wealth, almost, on the far right of the distribution.
1: And we're just talking in terms of the graph here, in terms of left and right, nothing else.
0: Can't help yourself, can you?
1: (laughs) And it's not just in terms of pensions that the wealth distribution is stark. So if we're trying to answer the question of am I rich, you don't just care about the median, do you? So if we look at household wealth, as we said, to be in the top 50%, you'd have to have just over £300,000 across all your assets. To be in the top 10%, you'd have to have £1.5 million of assets. And to get into that rarefied group, the top 1% that we hear so much about, you'd need £3.6 million of assets, or at least in 2020 you would have. And sadly, the bottom 10% of households have less than £15,000 of assets.
0: Now clearly the age you're at determines how much you've got in terms of assets. As you get older, you must accumulate more wealth. That's true.
1: The ONS says that age, in fact, is the best predictor of individual wealth, as you might expect. And it actually peaks between the ages of 60 to 64. And at that time, it's around nine times as high as the 30 to 34-year-old age group. And then after 65, it sort of tails down as you start spending your money in retirement. So for a 30-year-old in the UK, the mean household wealth is just under 100,000. That's the average. Whereas for a 65-year-old, the average is 600000 So it is a big difference.
0: Now, my concern is that these people who are now 30 are going to have a tough time building up that wealth, given that it's so hard to get onto the property ladder now and interest rates are higher. There are all sorts of things which seem to be holding them back. Is that the feeling you get when you speak to your contemporaries, Michael?
1: I don't know. I think there's a big divide between people who have come from families that have wealth and can help them onto the ladder if you want to talk about housing and people who are really trying to go on their own the people in the first group who have families with wealth or at least enough wealth to help them build a deposit quickly they i think they feel fine i've got a lot of friends like me who've got babies and houses and seem to be having a good time but then people without that support i think really do feel bitter about what's going on
0: and at a certain point there's going to be a generational handover of wealth there's going to be a move from You know, baby boomers die and then they hand money to the next generation.
1: But they don't hand it out evenly, do they? No. (laughs) So you've got to have it to hand it on. The other thing in the UK is there is a massive divide by where in the country you live. So in the southeast, the median individual wealth is over £150,000 higher than in the northeast
0: of England. And that
1: regional disparity is actually increasing over time.
0: And it's still the case that gender matters too. So on average, wealth was about £100,000 lower for women compared with men.
1: Yeah, that's the mean, isn't it? What's interesting, I think, when you look at gender is the median. There's not that much difference in the median wealth, but the mean is skewed because there's a lot of high-earning males, and it's much higher, like you say, than for women. And what's also interesting when you look at the breakdown between the different deciles, like you kind of did earlier, so the poorest 10%, the richest 10%, and everything in between, is that In terms of financial assets, we're talking stocks and bonds and things like that that are not in a pension, that's almost all owned by the top 10%. There's very little in the deciles below that. Most of the wealth below that is held in property and pension.
0: And again, I think this is a result of the UK not really engaging with investment, not having the average person invest in stocks, which indirectly is because of the poor financial education, I think.
1: Yeah, I think so too. And the fact that people's disposable income has been squeezed so hard over the last 15 years that maybe there's just a lot less money to put into the market. And I think to go back to the question of am I rich? Well, earlier on, we said it's probably not a great idea to compare yourself to others. So we're ignoring all of that here. (laughs) But wherever you are in the UK on the income and wealth spectrum, compared to America, there's no way you could say we're rich.
0: Yeah, there's a beautiful graph from John Byrne Murdoch. He's a data journalist who works for the FT. And what this makes really clear is if you strip out London, effectively the UK is very poor relative to a country like the US.
1: Yeah, I mean, the stark anecdote that keeps getting quoted is that, yeah, like you say, if you strip out London, the UK is poorer per head than Mississippi, which is the poorest state in the US. And just to be clear, this measurement is done on a GDP per capita basis and is based on purchasing power parity, which is the way to do it. It's looking at how much can you actually buy for your wealth. And even on that measure, the UK looks
0: poor outside of London. And on Twitter, now called X, he summarises it brilliantly. He says, America is a rich country. Britain is a poor country with one wealthy region.
1: Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at
0: pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension
1: Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Ramin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.